Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about neurodiversity in our music teaching studios. Welcome back to the show, lovely teachers. If you have been listening for a little while, if you're a regular listener, then you might know that I often tie in what I'm talking about each week on the podcast to the topic that's going live on the blog around the same time to kind of tie everything together, give you my perspective, maybe on something a guest writer is writing about. This week on the blog, we have a fantastic post about memorization from the perspective of someone who has ADD. I couldn't think of an angle for that. I don't think I should think of an angle to go along with that. That is going to sound genuine and just fit in correctly because that is about someone's personal lived experience and any perspective I give on it is from the outside. Basically, I think you should go read it firsthand from our guest writer. So that's what I think you should do. And what I've decided to do here is share with you a topic I originally recorded over on YouTube, on YouTube Live. So it's from our live show, so maybe the tone is a little bit different, but it's one of my favorite shows I think that I've recorded just because it's where I really honed in on these seven different tools that I use for my neurodivergent students. So I thought it was a good compliment to today's blog article, if you're listening to this as it goes live, while being a completely separate topic in and of itself. So I hope these tips, these ideas will help you open up your studio to more different types of students, make your studio more inclusive. Let's dive in. Today we're talking all about neurodiversity in the piano studio and I'm going to be sharing with you my seven different tools that I think are really useful for helping you teach these students and feel comfortable teaching them. So first of all, let's just talk about why you want to. But I think you're already on board, so I'm not going to go into that too much. I think music should be for everyone. I really do. I think perhaps piano is occasionally not the right avenue for that, but often it is. But we are just not opening our studios up to these different types of students. And the reason we're not doing that is because we don't feel confident. It's not because we don't want to. I know you all have warm hearts and you want to help. But sometimes we don't feel qualified or we don't feel like we have what we need and we feel like maybe they'd be better off with someone else. But let's do a little reality check, shall we? The truth is, 
that they're probably not going to find someone else. There are very few music teachers, more and more, but still, there are a lot of music teachers who are very stuck in a certain way of teaching, and they just apply that formula no matter what the situation is. That's the truth that I've seen out in reality. And so, you are not them. You're here, you're learning about new things, you're exploring new teaching ideas. You are one of the best equipped people to help this student. That's the truth. Even though you don't have a specialist qualification, even though you may not have experience, at some point we just have to jump in and we have to do it so that we be the change we want to see, I guess, so that we make a difference, so that we move our industry forward and make piano studios, music studios more inclusive more accepting of neurodiverse students. With that in mind, you need to know how to teach them and how to help them, right? You need to be able to feel confident doing that. So that's what I'm here to help you with today. So let me know what different diagnoses students in your studio have, what you've been working with, um, maybe specializing in. Let me know your experience in the comments. What I wanna do first is go over briefly five different diagnoses that you might tend to come across in your studio. Now, the caveat, of course, right up front, is this is not a specialty or an expertise of mine. It is something I've taken an active interest in because I believe in it, but it's not something where I have a qualification. So take all these things and do your own research, of course, but I want to give you a general idea of some of the most common diagnoses so that you can Go forward with that information and expand upon it yourself. Okay? Fair? Deal? Okay. So the first one that I think you're likely to come across and is almost a hot topic these days is ASD. If you haven't heard that abbreviation before, that stands for Autistic Spectrum Disorder or Autism Spectrum Disorder, depending on who you ask. But what this is, is what we used to call autism plus actually what we used to call Asperger's. So some people will still use that diagnosis of Asperger's, but now if someone is diagnosed these days in most countries, they won't be given that diagnosis. They'll be given ASD and just they're on the, the lighter end of that spectrum as it were. So ASD is autistic spectrum disorder and people with autism will tend to, but not always, <laughs> All of these things are variable, but they'll tend to be less comfortable with social cues. So they find it difficult to pick up on things that other people, other kids growing up intuit from their environment. People who have ASD might need to be told these things or taught these things. So, and they might have trouble with simple things like looking people in the eye and that kind of thing. This does not mean that they are antisocial or that they don't like people. Absolutely not. But it does mean that they have some more trouble in general navigating social environments. They will also tend to have particular stronger interests than other students might. So if they are interested in trains, they're really interested in trains, as an example. So that's a brief idea. There are a lot of differences between all these different people because everything is a spectrum. So including this, but those are some of the tendencies that you will usually see. Next, we have ADHD. There used to be a separate diagnosis to this called ADD, but 
it's largely been removed, as far as I can tell. So ADHD is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So that's the reason. Sometimes the hyperactivity was left out before, but I haven't seen that lately. I don't think it's a thing anymore to just say ADD. So Attention Deficit Disorder or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder is students, kids who have trouble, or adults, who have trouble focusing on the thing they want to focus on. I have a couple of friends who have been diagnosed as adults with ADHD, and it makes a whole lot of sense now. So these are not people who don't get anything done or procrastinate. It just means sometimes they can have trouble staying on task. It also means sometimes they can get too focused on one task, and task switching can be really, really challenging. The next one is dyslexia. This is the one probably more of us within education have heard about for longer, right? It's been going, doing the rounds <laughs> for a while now. So what is dyslexia? In general, it is a trouble with reading. That's the most common form of dyslexia, is that it's a trouble with reading. Sometimes people with dyslexia will describe it as the words are moving around or the letters are changing order, but not always. I feel like that's become a bit of a shortcut for us to understand it. And in some cases, people with dyslexia will describe it that way. In many cases, they won't. So some students with dyslexia will have more wide-ranging dyslexia, and sometimes it is quite specific. So I've had friends with spelling dyslexia who really have no trouble with reading whatsoever. They just cannot retain spellings whatsoever. And I've had more rare forms of dyslexia some of my friends have, so it really does vary a huge amount. But these students may have more trouble with music reading. Don't assume they will, though. That's my tip to you, because I've had quite a few students who have quite severe dyslexia, as in the school has decided that they, you know, they should use reading aids and they should um, use a keyboard instead of learning to handwrite because it's just about prioritizing where they spend, you know, where they invest their studies. And yet they have come to me and had no trouble, no more trouble than any other of my students with music reading. So don't assume, because it's a very different system to standard reading, isn't it? It's much more of a gra graphical representation, whereas letters are kind of more abstract, so it's quite different. Okay, that's dyslexia. Next one I've written down of my five, and there are so many more, of course, but just giving us an idea. Next one is dyspraxia. So dyspraxia, my layman's way of explaining that, is that it's trouble with coordination. Okay, so more challenge than most people with learning to coordinate your hands, your body in different ways. Navigate environments, spatial awareness may be involved in that as well. And lastly on my list is Down syndrome. Now this is more common in my part of the world than other parts for reasons that I won't go into because it'll get political, but Down syndrome is more common in Ireland, so maybe you won't often have students with Down syndrome, but I have had several over the years in my studio and these students will have more trouble with coordination. They often have more trouble with oral things I found, so listening and ear things, but do great with colour. So that's one of the tools we're going to look at later, but if you have a student with Down syndrome that might be a path that you want to go down. Okay, so any questions about those I'll do my best 
to answer them and if I don't know I will say I don't know because that's one of my core beliefs but I do know a fair bit because of taking an active interest um, in this and sort of being involved in the world of special needs growing up as that's the area my mum is in. So seven different tools. First of all let's think about why we want this to be tools in a toolkit. We've been very deliberate about that rather than saying this is the method you should use for this student, this type of student. Okay, so I prefer the idea of a flexible teaching toolkit that honestly is for all your students. But there are seven of those teaching tools that I think tend to to be used more liberally, more in lessons with neurodiverse, neurodivergent students. So those seven are the tools that I think you should draw from. I'm going to suggest which ones I think are more useful more often for different diagnoses. But that doesn't mean you can't use them for other students. So it just means you keep in mind, which one of these should I go to first for this student with this diagnosis? And then you go down the list and you try everything if things aren't working out or things aren't gelling in the right way or you just want a variety, okay? So that's why I think about it as a toolkit. You know, you try the hammer, it's not working, you take out the screwdriver. Okay, but nothing is that violent. <laughs> okay, tool number one is the one I've already mentioned, which is color. One of my favorite things in the world, of course. There are lots of different ways you can use color with students. So simple ways that I use color with almost all my students is to have them color intervals in their music. So I call it connecting the dots because I think that gives students a good visual. What they're doing here is getting a colored pencil for each type of interval. So it, a second is blue and a third is green and they just connect the note heads or circle around them if it's harmonic to highlight the different shapes and help them to point those out. And almost more than anything, help them, you to see where they're not seeing the difference. So when notes go onto ledger lines, do they get totally confused? Okay, now you need to take that and you can do a game that focuses on ledger lines and making sense of them or on landmark notes and that kind of thing, right? Carrie, yes, absolutely. So color is often fantastic for students with dyslexia. As I already mentioned, it's often really good for students with Down syndrome. In fact, I would say it's my absolute number one tool for students with Down syndrome. It really makes an enormous difference. And if you're a Vibrant Music teaching member and you have a student who really struggles with reading, but you, you still want to give them, there's no, there's no issue with a student just not reading. But if you want an extra tool that might help them to read, in our mini musicians program, we have star songs. Let me see if there's one right here. No, sorry, it's not on hand. I thought I, thought I could grab one, but it's behind lots of things. So anyway, we have star songs. This is a graphical notation of, it's like a, it's like a, a minimal staff. So it is one or two line stave, or it goes up to three lines. And so the notes are shown as stars. That's why I call it star songs. And they're just colored stars. So it's very, very pre-reading, but it is not the type of pre-reading which is most common, which is finger numbers. So students with Down syndrome, I have found the finger numbers, phew, that is very difficult <laughs> for them to grasp. 
And it also is challenging for many students because numbers are then used for so many different things. And you might need them for rhythm or for counting the numbers of notes. And then you get into a muddle if, if these things are not clear. So I really love star songs actually for my students with Down syndrome as well. And then the pathway to reading from there, they have these colored stars that they're following they get used to doing that and then they start trying to play with two hands using the same system and playing with different note lengths within that. And then we can take a standard method book. So this is almost all like a primer to a primer, right? And then we can take a more standard method book and they can color in the notes themselves. And that way we've given them a pathway to break down standard notation if and when we want to go there with them. In the meantime, they're just learning to play music and they love working this way. These are usually my students' favorite thing. When I'm using the, the star songs with a particular student for whatever reason, they're, they often prefer it to rote and they find it really sort of comforting, really reassuring to have that notation there, to be able to follow it. When students really have trouble associating a note with a I should be clear, sorry, a symbol on the page with a sound from the piano. I will have them touch the star, touch the note on the piano, and they start to build that one-to-one -one relationship, which a, a non-verbal student I had really had trouble with that. And that was the key for him. And then he was able to let go of that eventually. And he was counting them out on tracking the way that we expect in music reading. So that's some of the uses of color. There's so much more you can do with it. You can use it to highlight different things, to match things up, but it sort of instantly makes sense to many students who find standard notation to be just very overwhelming and very illogical or, or unintuitive. So that is color. Tool number two is simplicity. So this is almost going the opposite direction. Some students will do better with the most simple reading material that you can give them. Simple meaning design, lack of color, and lack of clutter on the page. So this is where I often really like Piano Pronto as a piano method for this, because Jennifer designed that in a way where it doesn't have drawings all over the page, distracting things, there's no color, and it's basically just pieces, songs in most cases. And then, yes, there is other information, but the page with the piece on it just has the piece on it. And that can be invaluable for a student, particularly for students with ADHD or ASD. That's when this would be my most, my number one go-to. And then if this wasn't jiving and things weren't making sense, maybe color is the route for them, right? So this is all about drawing from what you think might work first and then changing routes as you need to. So that's simplicity. It's simple. We don't need to say much about it, but do be aware as you pick out material for your student, if there is a lot of stuff going on in the page, it might just completely derail them from what they're trying to do and from their focus on the task that you want them to participate in. Tool number three is listening. So maybe for your student, the best route is not reading. Maybe that's not the best route for the bulk of the lesson work, or maybe it's not the best route at all, ever. And I'm here to tell you that that is fine. I'm not here to tell you, oh, if your student has 
whatever diagnosis, then there's no point in even trying reading. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> Assume your student is capable and then only change your route if this is just not the best way for them to learn music. The reality check here is that for most cultures, most traditional music and jazz and many things, it's not taught from notation. Like, we're the only ones who insist that that's the way to learn, <laughs> us classical people. So, if that's not the right route for your student, it's not. And this is where you need to expand your ability to teach by rote, to teach your student the skills to play by ear. Maybe that's going to be the best way for them to make music, and there's no reason why they have to read if that is just not the right fit for them. So, listening is a huge tool, and it is also really important for those students who actually lean more towards reading. So some of the students I've had with ASD, I would say in particular, for whatever reason, tend not to listen when they're playing, tend not to focus on the sounds they're creating. All these things vary, but that's been my experience. And so those students need to be given listening assignments so that they are listening actively to music, even if it's not at the same time as playing it, because that could be too much. But we need to use that as a tool with everyone, for sure. The next tool, this is number four, if you're keeping track, is sensation. Here I'm really talking about touch, for the most part. Now, this is something to definitely be aware of when you're teaching neurodivergent students because they may have particularly particular sensitivities to different sensations, to different feelings under their fingertips, for example, like the piano keys, or they may be less sensitive. So both things can tend to accompany several of these diagnoses, but particularly ASD here where they are hypersensitive or they're undersensitive. I can't remember <laughs> opposite of hyper right now, but you get what I'm saying. So these students, you need to be aware of these things. Maybe they won't remember the feeling of certain patterns as well as other students, and they'll need more reinforcement of that. Or maybe this is going to be the best way for them to learn because they really pick up on the sensations. So Things like going for a ride, as we call it. I think that comes from piano safari. That's not my term. But going for a ride is you have your hand and you're playing and the student puts their hand on top. So it would be their same hand, not their opposite hand, but I'm just showing you. So the student has their hand on top of yours and they can then feel when you're moving your key, uh, your fingers. They can feel when you're going side to side. Okay, so I know right now maybe you would want to be cautious about that, but you can get them to tap things out on a surface with you before they try it on the piano, and that can give them the feeling. Also, if you have a digital piano, one thing, that, or a keyboard, it can even be a not great keyboard for this exercise, you can get your student to play it with it off. Now, I know that's focusing on kind of the wrong thing, like it's not about drilling things into our hands and that's not what I'm saying. However, some students, pretty much with any of these diagnoses I find this to be true, can be really hard on themselves. Like really hard. They make one mistake and they are so thrown by it, so upset, so angry at themselves that you lose any momentum you had in the lesson. 
So if you have a student like that, it can be really helpful to get them to play. This is off right now. To get them to play on an off keyboard or digital piano so that they can test it out and feel things out and practice doing the right fingers and still be pressing down the keys without making a mistake because they won't hear their mistakes. And that's usually what tends to set them off or cause a reaction. So those are just a couple of ways to use sensation, but definitely be aware and ask parents of your students, ask parents of your students about all these things. Everything that their teachers in their school say, everything that they've been told maybe by physical therapists, that their child responds to well or is resistant to. It's really important to, to have an open communication with parents about this, but definitely ask them, okay, do they ever... Um, have problems with certain physical sensations or with too much light, with too little light. Sometimes you need to be careful of your studio environment if something's going to be really distracting for them. So if you're someone who tends to move things around, that can be really yeah, just distracting for some students. So we need to be aware of these things. It can be visual, it can be tactile. All of these different things are good questions to ask the parents before you even start. Tool number five is words and rhymes. So while some students with ASD in particular, Down syndrome in particular, will be non-verbal, meaning they cannot speak or they have very few words, some students will have a really hyper-focus on speaking and they love it. They love chatting to people. And I think some of that is when you can't communicate, say, with your body, like you have dyspraxia and coordination is difficult, or you have dyslexia and therefore in school writing things down is difficult and you tend to participate more in the chatty parts of the class, you focus more on words. And so many students who I've had with, particularly with dyspraxia and some with dyslexia, have just so much fun with lyrics and rhymes and putting words to rhythms. And that is the number one way for them to learn the rhythm patterns of a piece of music or to learn the tune by singing. So definitely make use of that and explore those options, as I say, particularly with students with dyslexia and dyspraxia. And the students with dyslexia almost might surprise us because intuitively we might say, words are not their friend. No, words are their friend. Reading is often not their friend, but words are often their best friend. So don't think that just because a student can't write well or can't read well, that they're not going to love exploring language. They might just need you to chant it with them, to say it with them, and they'll have lots of fun with that. Tool number six, two more to go, is pacing. So this is an important one to play with for all types of students, but particularly for students with ADHD. So what I mean by pacing is the way you move through the lesson. You know how with younger students, we'll often do shorter activities and repeat them, but spaced at intervals, so we're changing up things a lot. And with older students, we might focus on something for 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Well, with students with ADHD in particular, and again, with all students, you can experiment with this, you're going to need to play around with pacing. The instinctive thing for many people is to say, okay, my student has ADHD, I'm going to have to move a mile a minute. I'm going to have to keep changing every minute or they're going to lose attention. 
And for some students, that will be true. But for others, that's going to be way too hard. Because for some students, for some kids, what's difficult is changing. They feel like they're being ripped from one thing that they've tried so hard to focus on and thrown into another thing. And now they have to re-find their focus on this new thing and it's a whole other separate thing, right? It's like starting over. This is not true of every student, but for some it will be. So do be aware of that and plan for some transition time. What can be really useful with this is also changing the physical location. So if you are going to change your activity, maybe you focus on having some things at the piano and then some things at a separate games table or sitting on the floor. And when you move over to that games table, you say to them quite gently, we're going to play a game now or we're going to do a theory worksheet, whatever you're going to do, right? When you move over to that area, you say, we're going to do this now. You move over and then you give them a minute to catch up to you. And so if that's the way your student is going to work best, you need to play around with the pacing so that you actually get stuff done. So you actually, contrary to what I say most of the time, want to stick with one activity until they aren't able to focus on it anymore. So you actually want to use their maximum attention span rather than switching it up so that you never lose their attention. Does that make sense? So that you... If it is eight minutes that they can spend doing a piece, you actually stick it out rather than switching to make their learning more efficient because you're just going to waste a lot of time with them switching focus. Not everyone, but something to experiment with. Tool number seven is my favorite. I've left it for last. And it is rude directions. (laughs) Now, what do I mean by rude directions? Okay, I don't really mean rude, but there's a lot of fluff in the way most of us talk. And I would say particularly in the way teachers talk in many cases. So there's a lot of, if you wouldn't mind, and when you're ready, and how about we, when we mean, do this. (laughs) Like there is no room for negotiation. We're not suggesting. We're not giving them a choice. What we mean is, do this thing now, but we feel bad saying that. And so we put all this fluff in the middle. And all we've done for students with various diagnoses and for neurotypical students, most anyway, especially kids, all we've done is make it harder for them to follow our directions. In many cases, that's all we've done. They don't think we're being more polite. We don't have to be actually rude. Of course, that's not what I mean. But sometimes it's actually kinder to say, let's blank, right? Let's play this piece now. Or play that again. You don't have to say it like I just did play that again. You can say play that again. But it's a simple direction. They know exactly what you mean. Or start from the beginning. Or play this bit. Just very direct, direct, clear instructions will actually save you so much time in all of your lessons. (laughs) And the more you can teach yourself to do this, and it is an ongoing process that you will slip up on. I do. We all do it because we're so conditioned to, you know, sound friendly and kind of a bit, I don't know, humble or like unassuming, especially as women. And so we put in all this fluff. But the more of it you can cut out, the more direct you can be, the better it's going to be for the majority of your students. 
Okay, so those were my seven tools. We had color. We had simplicity in appearances, like black and white, no color, no images, that kind of thing. We had using listening, or playing by ear, playing by rote. We had sensation, meaning touch, focusing on the light in the room, making sure things are comfortable for your student, and using touch to help them learn in many cases. Then we had words, rhymes, lyrics, fun things like that that we can do, that for some students is going to be the number one thing for them to help them learn. Then we have pacing, playing with how quickly you move from one activity to the next, how often you change things, how often you move around the room. And then we have the direct directions, right? Just getting to the point, telling students what you want them to do so that they can understand the direction, process it, and do it. So I hope those seven tools are helpful for you and that they help you make your studio more inclusive. All right, lovely teachers, I hope you enjoyed that show and gave you some food for thought, some foundational thinking on neurodiversity in our piano studios. I would love to hear your thoughts on this or on today's blog post. You can find us at Colourful Keys on Instagram. If you ever get overwhelmed by all the different teacher training options out there, Vibrant Music Teaching is the place for you. We nickname our members Flamingos because they're masters of balancing all of the things and making it all work in a way that isn't overwhelming. We have tools to help you do that inside Vibrant Music Teaching. So go to vmt.ninja and sign up today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.